Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we are talking about genre writing and adapting superhero content for television with a very special guest. Welcome to Tamara Becca Wilkinson, who has written for Daredevil, Runaways, and is currently co-executive producer on Doom Patrol. Thanks for coming along. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And uh, let's get started. All right. So first up, where are you from originally and how'd you get your start in the industry and in LA? I was born in New York, but we very quickly, my family moved to, I was not involved in the decision. I was three. (laughs) Um, We moved to Florida because when you have three children, it's a lot cheaper to uh, to bring them up there. So in down in South Florida in a town called Plantation, which I mean, just as an aside, it's interesting that they haven't changed the name, you know, mm-hmm. in this day and age, it, it feels strange. But alas, I'm from Plantation, Florida. And it's a very suburban, very Jewish neighborhood. And I grew up there until I, I went to college at University of Miami. And at a certain point when I knew, probably about 16, when I knew I had grown up always loving movies and TV. And then I had a realization after Terminator 2 came out that you could do that as a job. Mm-hmm. You know, and once I realized that, that changed my life. And I knew that I was going to figure out how to get to Hollywood. And I was going to, but at the time, it, it was before the golden age of TV. So I thought I, I wanted to work in movies because that's where it was at. So I went to school at UCF for a couple of years and I didn't get into their film program. So I transferred down to University of Miami because at the time they didn't have a film school. They had what they called a film program and everybody <laughs> got into it. So I went there. And then when I was finished, I saved up money. I think I worked for like six months valet parking cars at a country club for very old people. (laughs) And then I, as soon as I had a a little bit of cash, I moved out to LA. And I was very, very fortunate because I had a cousin who worked in production at Fox. And so she was able to hook me up with a job as a post PA on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And that was my first Hollywood job. What a first job. That's amazing. I know. It was amazing at the time because it was just this show that was on the WB, this tiny little show that was really intensely loved by a small group of people. And you know, it's since become this cult classic thing that every so many TV writers, so many people just love it. Was it the the first season? No, I started in season four wow. when Angel split off uh-huh. to his own show, and when they had the uh, what was it called, the initiative? I can't even remember now. Uh, when Mark Blucas started on the show, yes, it was the initiative. The initiative, yes. yeah. Mm-hmm. So that season, and then, and then I was there till the till the bitter end. Wow! Yeah. Uh, when you transitioned over to Buffy, uh, coming from a more film background, what were your thoughts on television? Were you a big fan of Buffy at the time? How did you immerse yourself in that world? Well, it was interesting. So one of the jobs that I had as the post PA was we kept a, an episode library on VHS. So when people came in, directors or people needed reference for episodes, we had, because there was no streaming, there was no, here, I'll send you a Dropbox file to watch it. So we had a whole room that was just episodes and episodes. And my job was to make these dupes over and over and over again. And I'd never seen Buffy. I'd seen the movie in the theater, but I'd never watched the show. I, I didn't think it was my cup of tea at the time. Little did I know. Um, <laughs> But so I would just spend days and days and days. And I, after a couple of weeks, I'd seen every episode. I binge watched the entire three seasons of it. And that kind of changed the way I thought about television. I mean, I saw the character development that you could do in 30 episodes or 40 episodes of TV just blew me away. And it was so funny and so heartfelt and that I loved the fan service that they did, like they would have little jokes in season one that they would acknowledge in season three. And that sort of changed things for me. And I thought this is maybe more interesting, not maybe, it was. this is more interesting to me than writing movies. So aside from Buffy, what were some film and TV things that were influences for you? Roseanne was a big influence. I was, the reason why I think I really related to it growing up is because my family was a working class family. And before that, I was thinking about this just the other day that 
all the families on TV, for the most part, were very like aspirational families, like Silver Spoons and Different Strokes and even the Cosbys. You know, I would sit and watch the Cosby show and I would think, man, I wish my parents were doctors and lawyers and I wish they had the time to focus on me the way that those parents were involved in those. I mean, you know, Cosby show. <laughs> but, um, but when I watched Roseanne, I saw all of my family's struggles reflected in those family struggles about how are we paying the phone bill this week? But it was funny. It was so, so funny. It was so my humor. And I've done, I've rewatched it again recently and it just really holds up. And I realized like how much of an influence it was over me. And the same with the movies I really liked growing up were, I mean, I loved Woody Allen movies growing up. I mean, I'm just going through all these, <laughs> a lot of winners here, but, um, but Woody Allen, his sense of humor was a huge, and his writing too, is just so absurdly funny. That had a huge influence on me for sure. And going back to your career, how did you transition from the post department all the mm -hmm. way to writing? Uh, can you explain sort of your own journey there? Yeah, sure. So I think it was going into season seven of Buffy, the final season, and the script coordinator that had been there for a while, David Goodman, he had just gotten his first staff writing job on something. And so I knew that they were going to need someone to replace him. And so I wrote a letter to, I think Marty Noxon was going to be running season seven, and I wrote her a letter asking if I could move over to that position. And she so graciously said yes. And I was terrible at it, and I didn't know what I was doing. And I basically had, on a Sunday afternoon, three hours of training. And then and I was so bad at it, but everyone was very patient with me for the most part. And I mean, as patient as they could be, because mm -hmm. it's it's an important job, and it's so detail-oriented, and I was not. <laughs> so then I script-coordinated for a while, I for longer than anyone should have to, but not because of uh, – it was my own doing, really, because my focus was – spread out in a lot of ways. I was still sort of like newish to LA and I was still single. So a lot of my energy was focused on like trying to meet people. And then I started a band with a friend. So band stuff, that took a lot of time and energy, but it was fun. And then I also, to make extra money, I took a job as a reader for DreamWorks. And so I did that for about two years, but I'm a very slow reader and coverage wasn't easy for me. So that ate up all of my extra time. So the time that I probably should have spent writing, I spent reading all these scripts. But after two years of doing it, I realized that it wasn't wasted time at all because reading, I mean, it was like going to night school basically. And so once I left that, well, I didn't leave that, Paramount bought DreamWorks and so they didn't need as many readers and I was the newest one. So uh, I was let go, but yeah. So after that, I decided I'm just going to get more serious about writing. I think I had a, maybe a couple of spec scripts because at the time nobody read. I think the only person that at that time that wanted to read pilots was like Shonda Rhimes wanted pilots. She didn't want to read specs, but everybody else was reading specs at the time. And so I wrote a maybe a rescue me or a mm -hmm. house or something house. Let's go with house. Doesn't matter. <laughs> and then I started applying to the studio programs, the writing programs that all the studios and the networks have. And I got into the one at NBC. I was in the second year of Writers on the Verge. And that changed everything for me. Because that's how I finally got my agent. And I met an executive, Tom Lieber, who he was at the I can't remember if he was at UCP or he was at the Sci-Fi Channel, one of those, but I was a huge Battlestar Galactica fan, and that was his show, and he loved it as much as the fans did. I mean, he was probably the biggest fan of anybody, and he got to work on it. And I, so a year, we bonded over that, and a year later, when they were staffing Warehouse 13, he thought of me for it, and it had just so happened that the people who were running Warehouse 13 were Jack Kenny and uh, David Simpkins. And I was a script coordinator for them on Book of Daniel a few years earlier. Everything mm -hmm. lined up just right for me to, to get my first writing job. Wow, that's great. At that point, did you have only spec samples, you were saying? Yeah, only wow. spec samples at that time. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, I remember, I think it, at that time that we couldn't write a pilot in that now all these in these writing programs you write pilots but you couldn't write a pilot for them because they i think 
unless they were intended to buy it, they wouldn't read right. it, you know? It was a legal uh, requirement. Yeah. Do you think at the point that you got staffed, did you notice your writing had improved a lot that you started working on? Like, what, what do you think made the difference on the craft level for you? I had read the script Copland by James Mangold. And he had done something in that that I'd never seen before, which was he led your eye down the page by using... He he wrote no more than maybe like one or two, three at the most sentences in his action paragraph. And then like if he wanted to emphasize that something was in a drawer, he would write, and then she put her hand on enter, there'd be a line break, and then the drawer. And it was so dramatic and it made for such a quick read that I started to copy that style. And I think it gave my scripts... It made me a tighter writer because you had to use less words in order to do that. And I think it just made my scripts read quicker, too. There's a book now that sort of details how to do that. I think it's called Writing for Emotional Impact, and they they call it vertical writing. And it's a great, I mean, just go to the bookstore and just read that chapter. It's like three pages. I think it's by Alex Iglesias. Yeah, but it's Um, a really good book, and I highly recommend reading it. Once you got into Warehouse 13, what was that first day in the writer's room as a staff writer coming, uh, even from a script coordinator position, that must have still been uh, different? It was very different because I, as a script coordinator, you spend very little time in the writer's room. Maybe you can come in sometimes. It it really depends on where you're script coordinating at and how much writing you're doing of your own. I, so my first, I don't remember exactly the first date, but I remember we started in maybe October and around November, Thanksgiving time, I remember talking to people at Thanksgiving and People were very excited that I had my first staff writing job. And I remember talking to somebody and saying, you know what? I don't know if I like doing this because I had no idea what I was in for. I didn't fully understand that the job of a writer, you spend the least amount of that time sitting at your desk and actually writing. That what you're really doing is spending eight to 10 hours in a day with eight other people using your brain. And there's no downtime. And it was so intensive. And as an introvert, I think most writers are probably introverts. It's very intensive. So I was tired all the time. And it was a big room. And I was one of two women in the room. And so I felt like I was always shouting to be, not shouting to be heard, but I felt like it was hard to be heard over all these deep tone, strong (laughs) man voices. It was intense. It, It definitely was an adjustment period for me. And what was it like writing your first script on staff? Did you get one on Warehouse 13 or that year? I did. I was fortunate enough to get one. And the breaking of the story was terrifying for me. Because when it's your episode, you kind of can take the lead a little bit. And I just had no idea what I was doing. I had such anxiety over it. And then it was like this anxiety for me to look like I knew what I was doing, and then for it not to be bad. So I had all this pressure on myself that I really didn't need to put on me because I, when I look back at it now, there were a lot of people in that room that I'm still friends with that they really were there to help me and support me through it, that people that had done it before. So I wish I had been a little calmer about it or put (laughs) less pressure on myself. And then the same, like when you sit down to actually write it, you definitely, I had very strong imposter syndrome and feeling like, oh my God, I have fooled everybody into thinking (laughs) I can do this and now I have to do it and now I'm going to be exposed. And oddly, I mean, I hate to say it, but that feeling, it's still, it happens to me every time I have to, when it's my episode on the board and when I sit down at the computer and I I think I'm just better at talking myself down from it now (laughs) or just pushing through and doing it anyways. Because at a certain point, you have to do something. And so I'm just better at going, all right, well, if you're an imposter, they'll figure it out. You know, they're going to see it and it'll be over and that's fine. (laughs) And do you have any tips for people in this situation, perhaps getting that first script, feeling that anxiety on how to overcome it? Uh, I do, actually. Um, Something that I learned in the late-ish in my career, but what was really important was that I had watched somehow, I, I don't even know what I was watching, but it was some sort of movie or documentary with Mike White, the writer. And what he was explaining is that writing isn't just sitting at your computer and typing. You're writing when you're taking a walk, 
You're writing when you go to the movies. You're writing when you're doing a crossword puzzle. Your brain is still working on the thing that you were working on when you were sitting at the computer. So that just gave me a really different perspective on procrastination, that procrastination actually is writing. And I used to beat myself up so much when I couldn't just sit down and just force myself to start, that I had to do nine crossword puzzles, or I had to like buy a pair of shoes, or I had to read like, okay, what what does Rolling Stone think David Bowie's best album is? And I had to read that for nine hours, you know? And now I realize like that's just part of that there's a process to actually writing and that if it's not coming, you don't necessarily have to force it unless you're on a deadline that sometimes the best thing to do is to take a shower or two. So that that's sort of my first piece of writing to anybody. And then my second piece of writing, which I got from, I read one of those books like The Artist's Way or something like that. And what it said was, allow yourself to be bad. And that was so meaningful to me because what someone had explained to me about writing, I think it was Derek Hughes, who's also a fantastic writer. And he was on the first job with me, Warehouse 13. And what he said, at one one day, he I asked him how his script was going because I think they did the one before me. And he said something like, we just finished our vomit draft. And I was like, what's that? <laughs> and he explained that that's the one where you just type whatever. You just type literally the on-the-nose dialogue of, I'm mad at you. Well, I'm mad at you. Well, I'm more mad. And then you just get it out and allow yourself to be bad. Don't get stuck on any one line or any one thing just to have something on the page because it's so much less intimidating to rewrite anything than it is to stare at a blank page. And so once I figured that out, and I still have the anxiety that we all have, but it makes it so much easier just to get work done. How did you then go about finding the second writing job from there? Was it an easy process or was there kind of a period where you were struggling to find the next thing? They say that it is harder almost to find your second job than it is to find your first job. But I was fortunate in that I had someone who was advocating for me behind the scenes. And that was a guy named Rashad Razani. He was in the Writers on the Verge program with me. And he he was sort of like the star of the program because he left early because he got staffed on burn notice. And it was sort of like a bad year to get staffed because he got staffed and then the strike hit. Everything worked out. He still, he went on to the next season and it was fine. But he had been advocating for me behind the scenes with Matt Nix. And he was telling Matt, you got to read this woman's script. You got to read it. And Matt sort of, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll read it. Like the day I got my offer for Warehouse 13, Matt wanted to meet with me for burn notice. And I couldn't do it because I had literally just gotten the offer. And so when Warehouse 13 was finished, he had another show that he was starting called The Good Guys. And so he came back to me and asked, would I want to work on The Good Guys? And I sat down and met with him. And then he told me that Bradley Whitford had signed on to do it. And I really wanted to work with Matt. And I really wanted to work on a show with Bradley Whitford. And so I asked out of my contract and that's how I got my second job. And I, I don't recommend, (laughs) I don't recommend doing that. It was really hard people. And then I had since found out that people had moved around a lot of things and went through a lot to actually make the money work for, to add an, an additional staff writer to warehouse 13. But, um, it was fine. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and how do you manage the instability of the industry, especially for you who's worked in, in, in so many TV shows now? When you're in that in-between period and you're kind of stressing out about whether or not you're going to get that next job, do you have any advice towards that? Keep busy. This is like a do as I say and not as I do example because I was I'm a complete stress ball in between shows when I don't know where the next thing is coming from, especially now that I have a family. Um, it's, it's very stressful, but at this point in my career, I worry a little less because I just have faith that something else will come up. But early on when I was between jobs, I think I had like a year and a half, I don't know, I had one year and a half. It's really brutal. And so you just have to find things to keep you busy. I mean, write, definitely find one project to focus on and, throw your passion and your anxiety into. And I think that will really help. But then doing other things like I joined a gym just to have some place to go every day. 
just to get up and get out of the house. And that actually made a big difference just in my mood because I was getting depressed and I would go to the movies during the day. And But I really think just like lunches, find people, go have lunch with people. So you're now a co-executive producer. Can you speak to what it means kind of going up from staff writer to there and how the responsibilities change at each level? When you're at the lower levels, for the most part, the title bumps are just title bumps. That And it, it's really, well, I, I take that back. Actually, at all the levels, the you get the title bump because it's contractual and it more has to do with, for the most part, how much money you get paid as opposed to your actual responsibilities. And it varies from showrunner to showrunner how much responsibility they want to give you. For example, when I worked with Matt Nix, because he was running two shows at the time, and because the job of the showrunner is crazy that one person does that job, because it's a job for four people. So he needed all of the writers on his staff to be producers, regardless of level. I had been to set once on Warehouse 13, and the showrunner was there with me the whole time. So I was really there just as a spectator. When I got to The Good Guys, your script was your baby from the start of production through editing. So you were the one going into the editing room even and doing the first cut for him to look at. So you had a massive amount of responsibility on that show. Now that I think about it, that really was the first and only time that I've been given sort of that much responsibility. When I was on Daredevil, I felt like that was my first co-EP job and we were given sort of more responsibility there in the sense that we were each paired with a lower level writer and we would oversee the writing of their script just to take some up off of the showrunner's plate and then just sort of help them with the responsibilities of their episode. But there was no editing involved. It was never like, this is your episode or you are producing this episode for that person or with that person. For the most part, I feel like the showrunners that I've worked with prefer to, once it gets to editing especially, that they sort of take it from your hands and oversee the editing process. But you know what I find too, a little bit, just to add on that question, now that I'm thinking about it more, is that now when you're an upper level that you might get pulled into the showrunner's office more just to weigh in on if the showrunner has something that they're on the fence about that you might get pulled in with another co-EP just to to bounce an idea around or just to hear them out and give feedback on certain things. And how do you manage navigating between different genres because you worked on Warehouse 13 and then The Good Guys and Covert Affairs and then going back on shows like Runaways, Daredevil? Mm -hmm. uh, how do you manage as a writer to still be creatively fulfilled, but also interested in the, the different aspects of the, all those different types of genres? To be creatively fulfilled completely I think you just have to have something that you're excited about writing on the side. Because at the end of the day, your job as a writer on staff is to realize someone else's vision of the show. The jokes and the moments that you come up with on your own that you really love or that are really special to you may not scratch the itch for the producer. And that's just the way that it goes. And so what I figured out early on is if that showrunner doesn't like it, then it becomes mine again. And it'll be in the back of my head for some, I'll find some other use for it. And a lot of times you do. So navigating between genres is actually pretty easy in the sense that it's more about picking up on your showrunner's tastes and what they like, because some, the genre of it is the genre of it, but some showrunners may like more humor in their shows than others. Some may like more fart jokes than others. And it's just a matter of really like, attuning what you're doing to what they need from you. But I think the the one constant in all of it is that you're telling stories about people and about characters. And that in, I think in every job that I've had, that what the showrunners always want are these grounded human emotions and telling authentic stories about people. And so that's how, that's sort of been a through line for all these shows for me across all the genres. And that in all of these shows, I have found one thing about them, at least one thing about them that I found really compelling that allowed me to 
be very invested in these shows. We're not all in a position to pick and choose the jobs that we get. You just have to take the jobs when they come sometimes. And so I think it's really important just to find the one thing about it that you can really relate to because you need to, for your showrunner, they want you to be as passionate and invested in the show as they are. And if you're not, then just fake it. That, that That's really my secret. And jumping off that idea about genre, something that struck me about watching Runaways was that, uh, especially being created by Josh Schwartz and Stephanie Savage, it had much more of that OC kind of like teen drama heart to it than your typical kind of supervillain or weak engine because, you know, the villains were their family members. Was it much different writing for that or, or how, you know, structuring stories around that? No, I think the same thing was very true of being in that room too, that they really wanted to tell stories about these kids and about their feelings and what they were going through and more so. And then the the superhero stuff and all the the machinations of the uh, the bad guys were sort of secondary. And how do you manage working on such big properties with such heavy IP attached to them <laughs> and approaching adapting that content? Well, when you work on Marvel properties, you're fortunate enough to have good partners like Jeff Loeb, who they, they're your guide to that. So you and when you present ideas to them about what you want to do with their IP, they guide you in terms of what you can do or what's what's outside the lines for them. But I felt like on the three shows that I worked on, there wasn't a whole lot that they said no to, that they were cool with a lot of stuff that we wanted to do. Moving on to Doom Patrol, I'm a huge Doom Patrol fan, I have to say. Oh, you're the uh, one. <laughs> I, hopefully more now listen to this episode and then uh, watch the show. I'm just curious personally, the way you guys have approached breaking the story for Doom Patrol, especially how strange it is and, and how crazy the characters are. Uh, how did you go about creating that story in that season? Jeremy Carver, the showrunner, really set the tone for us with his pilot episode. And we knew from that, that we were going to be following very loosely the Grant Morrison storyline. And that, I mean, that's something that we all just gravitated towards. And it was so weird and incomprehensible at times, but we all loved the absurdity of it. And that early in the season, one of the things that we did, I mean, in addition to all the character work and talking about where people were starting and where we wanted them to end up in the season, we put a list on the board of what are people's favorite side characters or small characters or what are characters that we want to see in these episodes as fans of these books. And so we made this list and then we figured out how to fit these weird characters into this emotional trajectory of our season. That must have been uh, incredibly difficult, especially for Danny the Street. I feel like that's the, the one that... <laughs> well, there were a lot of characters on there that didn't make it into the first season, bigger characters that... Well, I mean, I felt strong. A lot of, I think we all felt very strongly that we had to do Danny the Street yeah. the first season. So in terms of a craft level in the room, how do you go about breaking individual episodes? Is there a lot of blue skying? Are you just kind of jumping off of ideas? Can you walk us through just kind of the general process of going from concepts for outlines to scripts? Sure. So what we did on Doom Patrol, and we did this on Daredevil also, which was we put in a lot of work at the beginning of the season to lay a roadmap for ourselves. So we would know where the big tentpole episodes were going to be. Like we knew roughly that we were going to do a Jane Underground episode. And so then once you get these sort of tentpoles set up, then you can sort of fill in how you get to those temple episodes, which you can always stray from. But once you have this very loose guide through the season, then you can start breaking them into individual episodes. And then you would just go episode by episode. And so we would have a rough idea of in episode three, we knew that we wanted the Doom Patrol to go on this road trip. That's how it started. Doom Patrol goes on a road trip and they were going to go back to Fuctopia. They were going to go back to where the machine was created. And 
It literally just started as, what if we did the whole episode as a road trip episode? Wouldn't it be fun to see these weird, awkward people together on a road trip for? And then somehow through the twists and turns of several, maybe a week of working on it, it just sort of morphed into... You know, and there is definitely like the first few days when you have such a vague sense of the target that you're aiming at, you do do a lot of blue skying and everything goes. And then you'll run off on one tangent, like the road trip episode, or what if they got stuck in the airport for an entire episode? And that was a day's (laughs) worth of work that we talked about. But then ultimately, when someone gets an idea like, what if they get to Paraguay sooner in the episode and that it's like this weird German Oktoberfest kind of place and then you learn the history of it through a puppet show? I mean, once someone said puppet show, that was a game changer. And, but you find some sort of thing like that, like puppet show that unlocks the rest of the episode. It's almost like doing a crossword puzzle. I'm a big crossword person and you can be stuck and stuck and stuck forever. And then you find, not me because I cheat, but you can find that one word that unlocks the rest of the puzzle for you. I think sometimes breaking a story can be like that and the rest of it will sort of fall into place. And how do you stay grounded when you have so many, I want to say insane or crazy ideas, especially when you approach episodes uh, non-linearly, the rat episode, there's a lot of those episodes that are atypical for a traditional TV show. So how do you stay grounded and, and rooted in characters when you deal with that sort of format? It's all about keeping the emotion of it grounded. And that is how I feel like you can do almost anything. Even in the moment when Admiral Whiskers, his mother dies, it's still about this little, he's an orphan and he's just lost his mother. And then here is this villain who's coming and capitalizing on that moment by trying to make an ally out of him. If you keep the emotions grounded, and that's been true of all the superhero stuff that I do, that you can get away with almost anything because that's what keeps it relatable and makes it feel genuine as opposed to cartoony. To that point, your show is very meta and and self-aware, especially with Alan Tudyk's character. How do you stay maybe more mature in that aspect, uh, especially if you compare to something like Deadpool, which Mm -hmm. in its humor is very juvenile, obviously, but how do you change that in this age where a lot of content is very meta-aware? I think that a little bit for us goes a long way. So if you just sprinkle in a, a meta comment here or there, with Mr. Nobody, then it works. But if every time he spoke, it was meta, 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 then I think it would become grating. But Deadpool is actually a good, I mean, that was a good touchstone for me as I was writing the show. You know, the, the humor is definitely very similar. Right. You spoke earlier about how Roseanne was so important to you because of that representation of working families. How have you approached representation in Doom Patrol, whether it's gender, sexuality, things like that? So with Doom Patrol, one of the things that we've, been very good about is trying to cast people of all colors in all roles and not just in side roles where people have two lines. You know, we've had an Indian superhero character, we've had African American superhero characters, and through with, I mean, Larry was a huge and wonderful gay representation that he was such a like masculine character, not someone that you would walk to. I mean, he's the America's sweetheart. He's a man's man, an Air Force pilot and with a wife and three kids and not someone who you would know was gay. I mean, casting is so much of it and then not making an issue out of the race of the person or the sexual orientation necessarily of the, with the exception of Larry, because we, the, his sexual orientation was important. And with um, Danny, the street, I mean, that episode was so meaningful just to me personally, to have a representation of a trans street and to have the uh, morally corrupt, uh, it, it was fantastic. And you don't see a lot of, I mean, unless you watch pose, which is also a great show, but Uh, Anything that we can do to normalize that kind of stuff or just to put more people of color and women in people's faces. You know, I think we've we've tried to do that as much as possible. And we've had conversations about because some of our in our show, we've gone back to like the 50s. We've gone back in time. And so we would talk about like when we'd be in the Bureau of Normalcy in the 50s and when we would cast it, we would have conversations about, well, back then were a lot of people of color working in government. In actuality, probably not. But at a certain 
point, I think Jeremy Carver, our boss, said, well, that doesn't have to be our continuity. That I, I thought was a great decision. That's awesome. That's great. And well, to that idea of representation, I know a lot of people, including myself, were really touched by the Jane's Underground episode, specifically because I feel like the show really talks about mental health. Can you speak to sort of how you guys approached bringing awareness about those issues? We really wanted to portray especially dissociative identity disorder in, I mean, none of us have it that I know of, but in as grounded a way as possible. So we had read, because Grant Morrison had based Jane's character in the underground on this book called uh, When Rabbit Howls. I think it's called When Rabbit Howls by Trudy Chase. And so we read that to get some insight into because it's written by Trudy and her 99 other personalities. So just to sort of get some insight into that headspace was one thing that we did. And then just doing some research about it, because I actually had some interaction with people on Twitter who were, were upset about Bullseye on Daredevil and how about why is it that every time when you have a psychopathic... I, not the psychological psychopathic, but when you have a character who's a mass murderer, why does he have to have schizophrenia or why does he have to, why is it always the same? And, you know, my, my answer was we, we did have a psychologist come in and talk to us about what would the psychology of this person be? But my larger point that I took from the conversation with this person on Twitter was that, but that's the only representation of people with these particular diagnoses. And so that was an eye opener to me to make me realize like, oh, we, we need to have representation of other people that are just having normal lives. And so I sort of took that to heart personally when we went into Jane character. Know. Yeah. And also because Jane's pat, I mean, there's sexual abuse there. And so we wanted to nod to it because it's an important, I mean, it's an important part of who she is, but without making it heavy handed or uncomfortable or triggering for people. Just on a character level, is it difficult to write someone who has 64 different personalities? <laughs> <laughs> In a way, yeah, because you're having to figure out who are these 64 people supposed to be. But I really, uh, I think a lot of credit goes to Diane Guerrero, the actress who really, she figured out, she breathed life into, I mean, because like Silvertongue, we just wrote, oh, wouldn't it be funny if she said, you know, <laughs> F your face with a, you know, whatever. But she really brought them to life. But you'll sit down to write one of them and you'll be like, oh, I don't know what baby doll's supposed to sound like. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you spoke to uh, about this a little bit earlier, but uh, can you talk about your experience being a writer on set and sort of your responsibility on a show like Doom Patrol? How did that work? I actually, I never went to set on Doom Patrol. I, it, the way things lined up oddly, I left just as my, my two episodes in the first half they were shooting. I had to leave to go back to the Daredevil mini room oh. for season four. And then when I came back and did a couple others, the guy who I wrote the my third episode with he had already been to set and he wanted to go back. And then the last episode, the showrunner wanted to go because it was the finale and the other, the staff writer, she wanted to go. So I never, I never went for wow. a two-year-old. Uh, did you get to be a part of the editing process for your episodes though? Or a little bit. Yeah. Jeremy would bring us into the editing room and we'd watch and give notes and, and we would watch effects sometimes. And he would invite us to go to the playback or to the last day of the mix, and we could give notes on the music and stuff. So he was very inclusive. So what has been your experience as a writer on set? What are some of your responsibilities? When you go to set as a writer, your responsibility is to, I call it, you're the babysitter of the script. You've been in the room with it since its inception. And so you know why certain story decisions were made, why you went with one thing as opposed to another. And you also know the big picture. So you know how the episode connects to other episodes. So you have this perspective that most other people on set may not have, or in the moment that 
they're not thinking of. So it's your responsibility to, as you're going through the day, answer questions about things that when people ask you, can I do this or can I do that? You have to think about why that decision was made and how it connects to other things. You're representing your showrunner, basically. So you're there to not necessarily put out any fires, but you're there to represent him. So to answer questions for him. And that if you can't answer those questions, you are the main line back to the to the boss to get those questions answered for people. So you're there just to help facilitate the making of the show without getting in anybody's way. And it definitely feels like at times, because you're Physical job, for the most part, is done. You've written your script, and so you're there to answer questions, and then you sit there and you eat and drink, And but everyone else has stuff to do, so you feel like you're in the way, mm -hmm. for the most part. So you try to keep out of people's way and not uh, touch anything, but uh, just be there. I mean, a good piece of advice that somebody gave me once that I think is good advice is ask how you can help people. Be there to, your attitude is be there to help. Do you find yourself working with actors much on set, or is that more something you leave to the director? It's more something for the director to do, unless I've had some directors that if you have a note for an actor, then they'll say, okay, you go tell them, you go tell them, or they'll they'll do it themselves. But for the most part, that's the, it's a DGA thing, in fact, that you, you, you can't really speak to the actors outside, unless an actor approaches you for a chat or whatever, or if they have questions about lines, then they'll come to you, but you should never go to a an actor to talk to them about their scene work. And were there any differences working in Marvel properties as opposed to DC properties? Yeah, the difference was that Marvel has a heavier hand in their shows in, in the sense that they're very in, involved and they want to be included and they're very protective of their IP, but they were really good partners to work with. And I feel like whenever we pitched ideas that they weren't okay with that Jeff Loeb always had a, if he shot something down, he always had a pitch for a solution or something else. But with DC, they, they, I mean, I don't, maybe it might just be specific to Doom Patrol because it's so weird that <laughs> they just had faith in what we were doing and that we embodied the spirit of the characters enough that they were okay with what they were doing. And there were a few things like, because Cyborg is the biggest character. So I think there may have been one or two things that they said that they wanted us to adjust with Cyborg. But other than that, they were pretty cool. They were pretty hands-off. So outside of staffing in all these rooms, what's your experience been of development and pitching and, and that sort of thing out there? So I have not a massive amount of experience with development. I've been doing it here more so this year, actually, after Doom Patrol. But early on, I had written a, a spec pilot that had gotten optioned, which was very exciting. And then it died. A slow death. And then, so when I was on Covert Affairs, there had been this book that I'd loved for years and years. It was called A Dirty Job by Christopher Moore. And it had not been available for option. I think Chris Columbus had the option on it. And for whatever reason, I just asked my manager, can you check again? Is it available? Because I had recently reread it. And it was available. And I had reached out to Christopher Moore personally and wrote him a letter. And he agreed to give me the option on it. And then I went to our producing partners, the pod on COVID affairs, which was Doug Lyman's company. And I told them I, and they had a deal with UCP. And I told them I have this book that I love. And do you think it'd be something that you could help me with? And Gene Klein, he checked out the book and he loved it. And it was so like crazy easy the way that it worked out that I I could hardly believe it because he came back maybe two days later and said, all right, let's do it. I talked to UCP, they're going to get the rights for us. And then they got the rights for us. And then they said, this book is so weird. It might be better for you to spec the script. So then they paid me to write that pilot, which was amazing. Yeah. And then I had this script and they took it out to a bunch of cable networks and Netflix and Amazon and everyone said no. And it it too died a slow, oh. painful death. And so then, but I had done other like 
pitching. I'd come up with some in ideas of my own and I've done the the pitching circuit and it's uh I mean it's terrifying. It's you're you're going in and you're basically performing for people in a sense and some people are really great to pitch to and they'll laugh when they're supposed to laugh or they're generous enough to at least offer a laugh even if they don't think it's funny <laughs> or they have any sort of human emotion on their face. I've pitched to other people that yawn through the entire thing or they give you nothing at all. It, it's so crazy. But most recently, I've been working on something with Warner Brothers and with Ellen DeGeneres' company and before that pitch, one of the producers said to me, don't try to perform, don't try to memorize it, just read from the paper. And I thought, "Real? that's not really my style. I like to, and he's like, just read from the paper. And I thought, uh, I mean, okay. And so I did it and it was amazing. And I think I'll never do it any other way because because I had the paper as my safety net, I went in, I didn't feel nervous at all. And then I didn't forget anything, which sometimes when you're pitching, it's like a four-year-old telling a joke, you know, like, oh, wait, I forgot to tell you this other thing that I have to go back to the beginning. And yeah. Now onto a different kind of pitching. Do you have any advice for pitching in the writer's room uh, as a staff writer or any level? Timing is everything. And I think that you have to keep up with the flow of the room so that a lot of times an issue, a problem will come up and it's something that you can get not stuck on, but you'll be working on in your mind. And because it's something that for whatever reason interests you, but as you're saying, and then this is perfectly fine to do as you're sitting and thinking about it, the room has moved nine steps ahead. So you have to find the moment, the right moment to, bring up that thing. Or last night when you went home, you were thinking about something in this story and you have some ideas you want to present. Ask if you can present them first thing before the day starts, because you really, you can stop the flow of the entire room if you're not pitching on the thing that the room is currently talking about. And it also, you're not setting yourself up for success because if people are not on that level with you talking about the thing that you're interested in talking about, I feel like you may have a lower success rate in getting your pitches through. So what are your long-term career goals? Where do you kind of see yourself ending up? Where would you like to be? I'd really like to have my own show. I mean, I jokingly used to say that by the end of my career, I want to I wanna be Shonda, <laughs> you know? Like I want to have a show with lots of spinoffs and I want to have my own empire, mm -hmm. but now and i mean who knows it could happen but right now i'm i'm focusing on the more shorter term goal of i just would really like to get my own show on the air because um, as as nice and as generous of uh, bosses that i've been fortunate enough to work with at the end of the day their word is always the last word and I want to be the decider. Are there any other areas that you see yourself branching out to, whether it's you know film or comic books or anything like that, or is TV really your your love now? I I do love TV. I still love movies, and I'm still I'm working on a feature at the moment. Apparently, it's very hard to get features made these days, <laughs> but I will always have this dream of seeing my name on a screen in the arc light. And so, I don't know, maybe one day it will happen. Sherman Oaks or Hollywood? Hollywood, of course, in the, <laughs> do, in the Cinerama Dome. <laughs> All right, before we go, we have a couple of final questions. Uh, number one, what are you watching on TV right now? Oh, I just finished season two of Dark. Ooh, how was that? Uh, I mean, okay, to be honest... A little confusing, <laughs> but I immediately went back and rewatched season one, which it's been so long between the two seasons that I had forgotten a lot. And so going back and rewatching season one illuminated a lot of things, but I just love that it's so, it's so true to its name. That's great. Uh, do you have any final advice for TV writers, whether they're working or aspiring writers that you want to leave with? Write what you love and 
is interesting to you and not what you think can get made. Because I think it shows on the page. And I've made that mistake before when people have asked if I've been asked to write like a medical show with a company that I really wanted to work with a long time ago. And so I tried and it, but it wasn't at all interesting to me personally to write a medical show. And I, and it wound up being, it, it was terrible because it wasn't what was interesting to me. And even if your manager or your agent says you should don't listen to them, they work for you. <laughs> and uh, lastly, you have any resources you can recommend to our listeners, be it books, apps, podcasts, websites, anything you can think of. Well, continue listening to this podcast, obviously. <laughs> the Writing for Emotional Impact book, I highly recommend. I really like the podcast that um, Javi and um, mm-hmm. Jose do. I even, as I've been working for a lot of years in the TV business, I'll listen to them. Like A really good one was about the function of a writer on set, I felt like was a good one, just to I I really get a lot from those podcasts. I learn a lot. Yeah, that's Children of Tendu for the listeners who haven't heard that one yet. Yeah, it's really good. And then read scripts. Read scripts of movies you like. Read scripts of TV shows you like. There are really great resources online. If you literally just type, like the other day, I just typed in Logan script and it, it pops right up. But it's, I I think as writers, we have so many things we have to read and so many scripts that we have to read just as a part of our job that the last thing you feel like you want to do is read another script. But uh, I think it's, it helps you sharpen your craft or you'll pick up a trick or a word you've never used before, a way that somebody does something that you've never seen before. And it can really open your eyes. So I, I highly, highly recommend that. All right, well, before we go, don't forget that we are now on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get exclusive content, opportunities, things like cheat sheet summaries of our episodes uh, and all that good stuff. So we can keep producing a great show like this for you every week. So thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. And thank you very much to Tamara for joining us. You're very welcome. Mm-hmm. Thanks for being here. And uh, you can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash one four four hundred and forty four episodes. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. Uh, where can our listeners find you on social media if you want to be found? Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at T.R. Becker, B-E-C-H-E-R. Excellent. And uh, if you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. What are we doing next week? Uh, that will be our monthly paper scraps episode where we kind of sum up what's going on around the industry and cover listener questions and all of that. So we'll see you guys then. All right. See you next week.